Why don't you turn in your, your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We get to finish up the chapter today. We've taken a few weeks to go through this uh, account. A few weeks ago, we looked at just the preparation for this miracle as Jesus uh, sort of laid the groundwork for that, preparing um, to do this amazing miracle. And then his arrival was like just a, uh, a week ago. And then last week, we actually saw the miracle, the actual raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, an amazing event. It's a wonderful picture of God's Son bringing life to people. He first brings spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead, and then He brings and will bring physical life to believers as we will be given glorified bodies in heaven. What was taking place is that Jesus was dramatically supporting his claim to be the resurrection and the life, a claim he made to, uh, to Martha. If you re- recall, the miracle was done uh, not in Jerusalem, but on the outskirts in a, in a town of Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. Um, and God had sovereignly orchestrated that there would be many people from Jerusalem there to observe this miracle, right, to witness it. Um, and among those people, uh, certainly some of them had to be uh, sort of some of the, the hostile uh, people, people who are hostile toward Jesus, because here in this passage, as with the other miracles we've 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 covered in John's gospel, there are different responses to the miracle. Um, for some, the miracle is clear proof, right, of of Jesus's claim, but for others, they become uh, confused. They're ultimately hardened by sin, and really, we really boil it down to two responses, and that's what we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John. Essentially, there's two, belief and unbelief, right? If you boil it down to those two responses, that's what we have. Um, And here in the aftermath of the the miracle, uh, we see such an incredible display of his power, right? Um, That provided undeniable proof of his his claim to Messiahship, but instead, what it does, it it seals his fate, His fate is one who will be rejected, one who will be condemned to die. It doesn't seem like this is the the, the path. From a human perspective, you think this would be the sort of the culmination of miracles of miracles, right? And and everyone would go, oh, that's it. Uh, You know, he's the Messiah. Um, And what's really fascinating is that we don't see any of the things we really kind of wanted to see at the end of the passage last week. Lazarus has been be- dead and buried in the, in the grave for four days, and you really, you just want to see the tearful reunion between Martha and Mary and Lazarus, right? You want to hear their, their description. You want to hear some of the things Lazarus is talking about. You know, where were you? What did you see? What did you experience? None of that is in there. Instead, what we get is uh, the aftermath, but on the, the side of those who don't believe. In fact, in, in my Bible, this section is, is titled, The Plot to Kill Jesus. We will see the wicked hearts of men on display here. Yet, it is not without hope. Because within this passage, we also see that even in these dark events, these are not outside the sovereign control of, of God. So let's look at the passage today. We're going to look at verses 45 to 57, finish up chapter 11. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. 
Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples." And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have once again to hear divine instruction. Lord, we believe this to be the authoritative word of God that we are reading today. And Lord, we just pray that you would open up our hearts for the truths that you want us to understand and apply to our lives. God, just would you just show us that today? We want to see you afresh, to see you new, Lord, and uh, I just pray that we would be blessed and encouraged and strengthened in our faith by what is read and understood in here today. Guide us into truth by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll look back again in verse 45 and we'll, we'll jump into this. Verse 45 said, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. And that's great news, right? That's kind of what we want to see. We want to get to the end of this miracle and see that a great many people believed in Jesus. And now it's true, many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary, right, to comfort them concerning their, their brother. That's why they were uh, there. And why Mary is only mentioned here isn't really clear. Why does it say Mary and, and Martha? If I could hazard a guess, I, I would say it has something to do with the personalities of Mary and Martha. And maybe uh, Mary required more uh, consoling than Martha. Remember, Mary was the one that stayed at the house, and Martha was, is the one that took off to find Jesus. Uh, Maybe Mary had a wider circle of acquaintances. We really don't know. Regardless of that, uh, many, the many Jews that are here had seen the things Jesus did and believed in him. And we've seen this before through the gospel, and I find it very interesting because several times in in John's gospel, and we're going to go back and walk through this really quickly, we're told that people believed in him. Right? After several things, after several miracles or after his teachings, we're told uh, people believed in him only to find out shortly thereafter that they really don't fully believe in him. Right? They believe, but they, they don't believe. And it's, it kind of gets confusing. So you really start to wonder, well, you know, who really believes? The most recent example of being Martha, right? Martha makes this amazing statement of faith. I believe that you're the Messiah, right? You're the son of God. You're the one who is supposed to come into the world. And then Jesus has to sort of remind her and say in verse 40, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Implying what? Well, she's not believing. She's not believing something about 
Jesus. If you go back all the way to John chapter 2, I just want you to notice this real quick. We're going to kind of just walk through Jesus' first miracle. Do you remember he's in Cana and he turns water into wine? It's sort of a private miracle, really for his disciples and his family. Not many, I mean, I guess the servants would have seen that. But we do find out in verse 11, this, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and, man, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, we really are meant to, to understand that, well, his disciples believed in him because they do follow him. They stay with him throughout that. But you just get to the end of chapter 2, And you find out that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Remember, he cleanses the temple. And in verse 23, it says this. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So this is a great start to John's gospel. He does this miracle. The disciples believed. He goes to the temple. Many believed. But then he adds these footnotes, John does, in verses 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew that they believed in him, but it was an outer superficial belief. They believed in him because he was this miracle worker. He's doing these amazing signs. He knew it didn't penetrate the heart, right? And so as we're going through John, we see this back and forth, belief or unbelief. We don't know where people uh, land. I think the great, next great really uh, sign of belief we see is in chapter 4. When Jesus goes into the Samaritans, right, to the Samaritan village of Sychar, and he has that inner counter with the woman at the well, what takes place there? It's amazing. Look at verse 39 if you go to chapter 4. It says, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Seems to be genuine belief there, genuine faith. Jesus even stays two more days after, you know, he stays with them. And so you seem to go, okay, there's some success here. Shortly thereafter, he heals the nobleman's son from a distance, right? In a verse uh, 53 of chapter four, The father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. We have more belief there. You go, just go up to chapter 7 real quick, verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So Jesus is doing all these signs, and they say, well, but if he's not the Messiah, then when the Messiah comes, will he actually do more signs than he Because Jesus seems to be doing a lot of signs. They're kind of confused. So then their belief seems to be, well, we believe, but maybe we don't believe. Chapter 8, verse 30, we find out again, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. And then right before the whole Lazarus account, Jesus is, remember, beyond the Jordan in Perea, and many more believed in him there. You have sort of this constant narrative of many believe. Many believe, many believe, but interspersed throughout that, we see examples of unbelief. What about the feeding of the 5,000? All these people are following Jesus, don't they believe? They want to make him Messiah. They want to crown him as king, don't they believe? Well, Jesus says they they don't, right? They just want more bread. (laughs) You have genuine belief and you have unbelief. What's going on here? In our passage here, is this genuine belief or is this not genuine belief? belief. 
As we go through this one, this particular passage, I think we will see that the many who believed here are genuine believers. Jesus' miracles caused a sensation and people followed him. This particular miracle, I think, was so powerful, so convincing, that it's unlikely to produce sort of that shallow, superficial faith that was produced in the others. But also, and this is more important as we go through this, you're going to see this contrast of the groups. John makes a clear distinction between those who said to believe and the unbelievers who go and report the miracle to the Pharisees. So let's look at that. Verse 46, this is where we really kind of get into it. We have verse 45, the many who believed in him, but here's the contrast, verse 46, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. This action alone reveals this group doesn't believe. There are some commentators who believe that uh, this is a group of actual believers who go to the Pharisees to report the miracle to try to win the Pharisees over. But I think we can't get there from here because we find out that there's been sort of a command issued by the Pharisees to report Jesus' whereabouts. It's a negative thing. They they also, they're aware of the bitter hatred of Jesus on the part of the Pharisees. That's well known. And no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Remember that back in chapter 7? I don't think these people are believers. I think they're tattletailing here. They're going, they're going to the Pharisees. Okay, that Jesus guy, he's stirring up a crowd. This is bad news. A true believer as well. Think about being at that tomb, seeing a, a man who was dead four days come walking out of the... You, you, you wouldn't go run off. You, you'd, you'd be right there at the feet of Jesus. You, you'd be prostrate on the ground. The true believers are there with Jesus. These people are looking to the religious authorities to take the necessary action against him. And then we come to verse 47 to see the reaction from the religious authorities. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? Now, after they came to the Pharisees, it says a council was formed. And I think this is a full council. And if it was a full council, as it appears as it was with the priests and the the Pharisees, then that means the Sadducees must have been present as well. The two groups were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they formed the ruling governing body of Israel called the Sanhedrin. You remember that? So the two groups make the one. And to form a council, you need both groups there. Now, I know the passage here just mentions the Pharisees, but why would the Pharisees be the ones you would go to? A couple of reasons. Something you have to remember about the Pharisees. They were the experts in the law. They were the ones that were the teachers. They were the ones you'd find in the synagogues teaching the law. And uh, as a result, they had more contact with the common people. Okay, the Sadducees were those sort of the wealthy aristocrats, you know, they were kind of on their own. But also the Pharisees accepted everything in the Old Testament as uh, authoritative. But the Sadducees, just the Pentateuch, just the first five uh, books of the Bible. But here's the biggest thing, the biggest distinction. Why would they go to the Pharisees and not the Sadducees? The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in the supernatural things like a resurrection or or angels. The Pharisees did. So this group of people, they go to the Pharisees and said, "Uh, Jesus did, did did a resurrection. Now, this causes quite alarm, and the Pharisees gather a council together. Now, although they had all these differences, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did share one thing, and that was their mutual hatred of Jesus. They, they, they were on the same page there. They did not like Jesus. And what brought them together, as you will see, is the threat 
Jesus posed to their power and their influence. Look at verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So here we see their concern. They're worried that if Jesus continued doing signs like this on this magnitude, everyone would believe. There wouldn't be uh, anybody sitting on the sidelines. They'd all be behind Jesus. What's the problem with that, right? I mean, in regards to these believers, this is what you're looking for, right? Isn't that what the priests and the Pharisees, they're looking for the Messiah? Don't you want people to be behind the Messiah? Weren't they waiting for him? Isn't that what they wanted? Well, yes and no. (laughs) Yes, they wanted that, but the Jews were waiting for a Messiah that, well, and they still wait for him today. Um, that would come sort of, um, as far as they understood, vanquish all the rulers and set up his own kingdom with the Jewish people at the top, ruling with the Messiah. And as far as they knew, Jesus doesn't have an army with him, right? When Jesus was going around, he didn't come with, with an army like the Romans, with armor and all of that. So they're a little bit worried here that if people begin to believe and the people get behind him, what do you have? You have an insurrection, right? An insurrection of the people. And so the Sanhedrin is quite confident that if that happens and they have to go to war with Rome, that's a battle they'll lose. Probably wisely so, right? Um, Look at what they're afraid of. It says that they're afraid of losing their place. Did you notice that? Our place. The word is tapas, and it can mean a district or a region, like a location. But it can also mean power, their power. And I think they mean both. What is the symbol of the Sanhedrin's power, their their authority, their influence? What is there in Jerusalem that symbolizes all those things? The temple. The temple is the symbol of that. That is where they find their identity. It's their national identity is built into that temple. It's all about that. If they lose that, they lose their power in their mind. They lose their authority to rule. They lose all of that. It's the symbol of God's blessing upon the Jews, his dwelling with them as his special people. And that's why here, whenever when you're going through the Gospels, well, you go through the New Testament, whenever you wanted to take someone out, all you had to do was uh, include the temple in the accusation. And that's a pretty surefire way of getting rid of that person. Remember, they didn't like Stephen very much. Remember Stephen in the, in the New Testament? Yeah, listen to this in Acts chapter 6, verses 13 to 14. They set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. You see how they tied into the temple? We want to off this guy. Oh, just throw out an accusation, a false witness that says he wants to take down the holy place. And then everybody, they'll be behind him, right? Let's take out Stephen. And they do. Here's the accusation against Paul, a similar one in Acts 21, 28. They were crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. He doesn't look at this place as holy. He defiles it. Kill him. See, they tie it all into the temple. 
They don't want to lose the temple. And if they lose the temple at the hands of the Romans, they lose their power. Do you see that? They don't want to lose that. But they're also worried about losing their nation, it says. Ethnos is the word. So the the people, the Jewish people, the Romans were the mightiest nation on the planet, and the Jews would stand no chance against the might of, of Rome. Now, there is a, a movie you might have uh, heard of called Fiddler on the, the Roof, right? And I mentioned it before when we were going um, through some of the other uh, studies previously. But um, an amazing thing about that is that there's, there's some things that really carry over well here. Because here you have the, uh, the, the leaders here not judging the situation objectively. They're really judging it on how it will affect them, right? They're not questioning whether he really is the Messiah. They really don't care at this point, they just don't want to lose what's, what's theirs. In the movie, The Fiddler on the Roof, you have Jews um, in, in Russia. It's sort of the 1900s, 1905 in that era, before they're uh, persecuted there and they flee to places like Poland uh, and even uh, America, those Eastern European countries where obviously later on, they're incredibly persecuted. But there's an amazing scene here. There's a Russian, Russian constable who is sort of governing the area and he's befriended the Jews he likes the Jews, but he's given an order that he needs to have them all kicked out. And so he comes in finally, and he gives them three days' notice to pack up and get everything out. And this one character, his name is Model, he asks the only rabbi in town, he asks him this question, Rabbi, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? Right? Here we're being persecuted, we're, we're being told we have to leave everything we have, three days from now we've got to be gone. Wouldn't this be the time to come? Why, why is he asking that question? So that he can come and stop them from losing their home. Do you see how they tied into just how it will affect them? It's even in the movie. And here's the rabbi's answer. I love that. We'll go and wait for him someplace else. <laughs> and they do. And they're waiting today. So they're only worried about how it will affect them. In addition to that, Think about what's right around the corner. The passage tells us Passover. Passover is coming up. Jerusalem will be packed with zealous pilgrims who will easily follow into, right, the crowd following Jesus if they were to get wind of these miracles. If that ignited the passion there, the Roman governor could get wind of that potential uprising and do something about it. Who was governing during that time? You probably know it pretty well. Who's the governor Jesus has taken before at the end? Pilate, right? We know his name, Pontius Pilate. And they know what Pilate can do. In fact, Luke chapter 13 gives us a little glimpse. In verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Someone tells Jesus, as if he didn't know, that Pilate was such a terrible guy, he actually killed people while they were in the temple. And he did. There were some people who went to the temple for whatever reason. Maybe Pilate got wind that they were religious zealots. Uh, There was an insurrection beginning. But he kills them in the temple so that their own blood mingles with the blood of the sacrifices. Now that is a a horrific just atrocity in their minds, right? You've just desecrated the temple. Rome did not tolerate insurrection. Pilate did not tolerate insurrection. These leaders are worried about that. We saw what Pilate will do. All he has to do is get a little whiff of something going on and we're done for. 
We lose our temple. We lose our power. We lose our place. So they look to Caiaphas, the high priest, for the answers. Just like the rabbi and fiddler on the roof, they have the answers, right? Well, we'll go and wait someplace else. Caiaphas enters the scene. Caiaphas is an interesting guy. He was appointed as priest in AD 18 by the Roman prefect Valeris Gratus. And the Romans are the ones that appointed the priests. And you're like, well, when did that start? Well, it started because the, the tradition was that the high priest would be in that office forever, for a lifetime, right? But Rome does not want one guy to have that kind of power that long. So they started to take it on themselves to appoint uh, the high priest when it suited their needs. So Caiaphas is the high priest. Now, he's the son-in-law of Annas. You guys have heard of Annas. In fact, we'll get to him in John chapter uh, 18 because Jesus actually will be taken to Annas first before he's taken to Caiaphas, even though Caiaphas is the high priest. It shows us that Annas still holds a great deal of influence and power. But here Caiaphas is the high priest, and he reigned a great deal of time. In fact, um, he is a high priest that had one one of the longest reigns in the first, uh, first century here. So he's taken to Caiaphas. Caiaphas comes in. And what he says here should give you some kind of idea as to what kind of man uh, Caiaphas is. Uh, you, you can see it here in verse, uh, verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> Literally three words, humais ido u, you know not. <laughs> yes, he was politically shrewd. He was uh, opportunistic in nature. That opening remark just gives you a taste of his rude, uh, arrogant behavior. When you see him before Jesus, before him at the end, sort of in, in mocking, he will tear his clothes, right? Looking for a reason to accuse uh, Jesus, he will tear his clothes as if Jesus has said the worst of all blasphemies, right? I mean, he's this kind of guy, oh, that's it. He's done for, he's dead, take him away. Yeah, Caiaphas is a player. <laughs> that's what he is. He's a player. He knows how to remain in power a long time. And to remain in power a long time, you've got to be on the inside track with the Romans. You've got to be concerned about your position. You've got to be concerned about your power. And he doesn't care a shred about Jesus. So what he does here in verse 50 is he presents a false dilemma, a dilemma that doesn't exist. He gives them two extreme choices as if there's no other choices in the world. Look what he says, verse 50. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Here's the two extremes he just says in that verse. Either Jesus dies or the nation. There's, There's no in between. There's no other choices. This is it. Jesus has to die or we die. Now, who in that group is gonna go, okay, yeah, we die. That's the choice. So he's not giving them a choice at all, is he? Caiaphas comes in and says, you don't, you don't know anything. Jesus has to die. If you want to fit in what really is taking place there, that's it. He's got to die. If he doesn't die, you're putting the whole nation at risk. We're going to lose our power. Everything you say, you're right. He's, that's why he comes in and says, you don't know anything at all. You don't know anything at all. Jesus has to die. This is not even a discussion. There is no choice, is what he's saying. You know not. Jesus dies or we all die. The more expedient or profitable option is that. Jesus died. He's just one man. He's just one man. This seems pretty dark. You, you go from this amazing uh, miracle, you expect all this glory now to be going to him, which it should. Wasn't the miracle for the glory of Christ? 
I believe that's what Jesus said it would be for, the glory of the Savior, also for the Father. And all of a sudden, we're seeing the opposite. Where's the glory? There's no glory going to, to Jesus. People are plotting to, uh, to kill him. John gives us this little fascinating footnote in verse 51. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. <laughs> John recognized the irony in the words of Caiaphas here. Caiaphas simply meant that Jesus had to be killed. That's, that's all he meant. But God providentially infused those words with a, an entire different meaning, one that Caiaphas did not intend. And as high priest that year, Caiaphas is meant to be, by office, a spokesman of God, right? So God is using his spokesman regardless of whether or not the spokesman intended it to speak for God. Pretty amazing here. The truth of God's providential working in and through the lives of even wicked men, like Caiaphas, is seen throughout Scripture. Uh, Peter and John would later praise God with that same understanding in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. They say this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They did not know that before. Peter and John, after Jesus rose, recognized all this. Oh, wow. Right? Even Herod, even Pontius Pilate, all the people, all those people unwittingly were doing what you had prepared for them to do. John is giving us a glimpse of the same thing here. Now, keep this in mind. Caiaphas is not a puppet. All right? He's thinking on his, with his own mind. He's responsible for his own wicked words. It's coming from his own wicked heart. What does his words mean here? This is what I want to look at here. Caiaphas unwittingly pointed to Jesus as the last sacrificial lamb in a prophecy he didn't even intend to make. Incredible. Look at it again. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Look at the prophecy again. Verse 50, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. That is the plan there. Caiaphas has his own plan. God has his. Proverbs 19.21 reminds us of that. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. You can make your plan. It's not going against the Lord's counsel. Caiaphas has made his plan. We're going to kill Jesus. Not going against the Lord's counsel. It's actually in line with the Lord's counsel. That's what John says. This is exactly what needed to happen. It's just like the story of Joseph. We all love the story of, of Joseph, right? Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. Right? They take his robe. They throw him in a pit. They sell him to slaves, right? He goes off. He ends up working for Potiphar, but then he's accused, and then he's imprisoned, and then he's released, right? And he's, before you know it, he's second in command. His brothers have to come back and get food, and who's in charge but but Joseph, and when they learn that it's him, boy, are they scared. Revenge time, right? Here's the man with the power. But I love what Joseph said. I'll just read it from Genesis chapter 50. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Oh yeah, in their hearts, they had wicked intentions, wicked plans. They just wanted Joseph out of the way. 
But all along, God used those things to orchestrate things for good. This is the same thing we're being reminded of here. The prophecy of Caiaphas is a reference to Jesus' substitutionary atonement. It's sometimes called penal substitution because penal because there's a penalty kind of associated for his death and substitution because he's our, our substitute. That's why we, we say that. Maybe you've heard it more here, vicarious atonement. We don't have vicars so much in the States, but you have vicars here. What is a vicar? Do you even know? One who stands in place of another. So the reason we can say Jesus' vicarious atonement is that he vicariously stood in our place. He represented us. That's what your vicar is if you had a, a vicar. Yeah. And the New Testament teaching that Jesus is God's sacrifice for sin is a fundamental truth. We, we sang about it a bunch, didn't we? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A very great uh, substitutionary atonement verse. I'm just going to explain some of this because I, I don't always want to assume everyone knows what we're talking about when we say these big words like substitutionary atonement. I got a young daughter in here sometimes they come back, she goes, Dad, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Substitute. He made him who knew no sin. Who's that? Jesus. To be sin for us. We're over here. We're the sin. So he takes our sin. Why? So that we can become the righteousness of God. Jesus and his righteousness, us and our sin. Jesus takes the sin. We take the righteousness. That's a substitution. You see that? 2 Corinthians 5.21. 1 Peter 2.24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. There it is again. He bore in his own body on the tree. Whose sins? Our sins, substitutionary death. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. You can see it very clearly in these verses, can't you? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. When we think of Christ's death as a substitutionary atonement, there's four things we need to consider. There are needs that we have that were met by the death of Christ. And I just want to hit these really briefly because I want you to understand them. The sacrifice is because we deserve the penalty of sin, which is death. It's the sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26 says, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The writer of Hebrews is talking about all the Old Testament sacrifices. You had to do them all over and over, Right? But Jesus comes and offers a sacrifice once. He put away sin once when he sacrificed himself. That's the sacrifice. The penalty of sin is death. And to pay the penalty of death that we we deserve due to our sins, Christ sacrificed himself. A second word, and probably a longer one and not as familiar to everyone, is propitiation. Propitiation is in several New Testament verses but that just means we deserve to bear God's wrath for sin. In 1 John 4.10, we're told this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's the propitiation for our sins? That has the idea, well, it has the atonement is in that. Um, the atonement or the wrath-satisfying element of, of uh, or aspect of the sacrifice. I sometimes call it the uh, wrath quencher. 
It's the, to remove us from the wrath of God. Jesus absorbed God's wrath. He's the propitiation for our sins. So we deserve the penalty of sin, death. We deserve uh, to bear God's wrath for sin. Those are two things we deserve that are taken care of by the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But there's also two realities of where we stand that are taken care of too, that you should be aware of. And one is called reconciliation. We're separated from God by our sins. We cannot have fellowship with God because of our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, Paul says this, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we are reconciled back to God through Jesus Christ. Our separation has been overcome. We're brought back into the fellowship with God, and that's through Jesus. And one more word, one more reality of where we stand, we're in bondage to sin in the kingdom of Satan. We, um, we need redeeming. We need redemption from that kingdom. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot. Your redemption, it has the idea of, of, of being paid for or bought, and the, the price was the blood. Jesus' blood is what bought you, redeemed you back to himself. Paul talks about it this way in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That deliverance from one kingdom to another had a price to it. We're looking at possibly shipping some of our belongings over here from the states. All right, they've just been in storage in different people's homes and cluttering up their poor homes. <laughs> and so since we know we're going to be settling here now for a while, we thought, oh, maybe we'll look at shipping some of our stuff here. Shipping from California <laughs> belongings to the UK. I wish it were free, <laughs> but it comes at a high price because something has been conveyed from one place to another. You have been conveyed from one place to another and it, it came at a high price. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. So all of these things, I just wanted to take time to talk about because they are all bound up into this little prophecy said by Caiaphas, and he didn't even know what he was talking about. <laughs> he was right. It is better that one man would die for all. His words are meant to be cynical. He's speaking of political prophet, but his words are profound. Christ is our substitute. Not only that, though, his death would also not only be for the Jews, but for others. Look at verse 52. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So in one sense, the children of God who were scattered abroad does refer to the Jews. There, there's many Jews that were scattered living outside of Palestine. They would be redeemed as well and gathered into one body. But also, in a wider sense, he's referring to the Gentiles. You can go back to the Old Testament and see that that was prophesied about. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, Isaiah speaks about a servant, uh, Christ, who would accomplish this. Look at what he says. Indeed, he says, it, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. 
I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Gentiles and Jews will be united into what we now know as the church today. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we've all, all been made to drink into one spirit. And so this is what is, is, is said by Caiaphas. And then John sort of translates or gives us a note about what is really meant by it in terms of God's perspective. You have man's perspective and then God's perspective given to us by John there. So John looks at these events, I think, in the way that we should, not as events that he regrets, not as events that he wishes he could change, but instead with awe at the perfect plan and power and will of God. Verse 53, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. The Sanhedrin obviously approved the plan of Caiaphas. A plot is conceived and it's put into action. But it's not going to interfere with the timing of God's plan. So two plans are in action. There's a plan of man and a plan of God, and they're working congruently uh, together. It's not quite time yet. So verse 54, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his uh, disciples. Uh, People are still trying to figure out exactly where this place is. It's probably Ephron, which is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 13, 19 because it fits the location described better. It's about 12 miles from Jerusalem on the edge of the Judean wilderness. So he's gone quite a ways away to stay out uh, of the, the, uh, the hands of the Jews. Verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So Jerusalem is beginning to get crowded, going up early to prepare for the Passover. Uh, This is the third final Passover mentioned in John's gospel. Notice the people are flocking there to purify themselves. Very interesting. The religious authorities, right, they've just set a a plot of murder in motion, right? Clearly staining themselves. The blood of Jesus is, is on their hands because they intend murder in their heart. And people are flocking there to purify themselves. Is this all this outward religion stuff? It has has no bearing whatsoever. They're completely filthy, wretched on the inside. And their plan is out in the open. And the last two verses tell us that. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So John just tells us with that last verse why the question was being asked in verse 56. Why are people wondering whether Jesus is going to come or not to the Passover? Because all Jewish males would come to the Passover. Oh, because this order had been given. If anyone sees him, report it, because we want to seize him. Interesting, the Passover feast, a symbol of God's provision for sin and deliverance from death, and yet it's tainted with a sinful plot to bring about death. The irony of this is really remarkable because in an effort to save really their power, right, their position, their temple, their nation, the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. They will be successful. They will kill him. But the destruction they hope to avoid came about anyway. Instead of following the good shepherd 
the people followed false shepherds into a war against Rome. And in AD 70, the Romans destroyed the temple, persecuted the Jews, taking away their, their place and their nation. They actually didn't accomplish anything except for God's plan. This is an account written by Josephus about the destruction of the temple. These Romans put the Jews to flight and proceeded as far as the holy house itself, at which time one of the soldiers, without staying for any orders and without any concern or dread upon him at so great an undertaking and being hurried on by a certain divine fury, interesting, snatched somewhat out of the materials that were on fire and being lifted up by another soldier, he set fire to a golden window through which uh, was a passage to the rooms that were round about the holy house on the north side of it. As the flames went upward, the Jews made a great clamor, such as so mighty an affliction required, and ran together to prevent it. And now they spared not their lives any longer, nor suffered anything to restrain their force, since that holy house was perishing. Thus it was the holy house burnt down. Nor can one imagine anything greater or more terrible than this noise, for there was at once a shout of the Roman legions, who were marching all together, and a sad clamor of the seditious, who were now surrounded with fire and sword, the people under a great consternation made sad moans at the calamity they were under. Yet was the misery itself more terrible than the disorder, for one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot as full of fire on every part of it. That's what they were trying to avoid, that, that very scene. And Josephus accounts it, but it took place. They were still in the will of God. Stacy read earlier today, Psalm chapter two at the beginning, the people plot in vain, the nation's rage. The people who plotted the end of, the Jesus, of, of Jesus here uh, plotted a vain thing, right? While their plans seemed to be successful, God orchestrated a, a different outcome through them. Jesus was killed. They were successful in that sense. But that was according to the perfect will and plan of God because Jesus because Lazarus rose, remember last week, because Lazarus rose, Jesus will rise and he will be victorious. In this dark passage that we end today on, God is victorious. That's what I want you to see today. God is victorious. Don't plot a vain thing. We just put your trust in the Lord. That's how Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are those who just trust in him, right? Don't, don't even try. Don't, don't even try to plot your own thing. Trust in him. God orchestrates those things. Just, just focus on your relationship with him and trust in him. He's got you. And with that, we end chapter 11, and we really end a major section of John's gospel. It turns a new corner uh, beginning in chapter 12, so it's a perfect ending place for the next three weeks. We'll be gone. I just wanted to end with a, a quick challenge while we're away. Would you be prayerful and watchful over one another? I think the Bible says something about that, that you would be prayerful and watchful over one another. I'm sort of being paid to do that, I guess you could say it that way. It sounds awful. I don't do it because it's a, my you know, job. I, I do this because I, I love it, and I love you. I love our church. So while we're gone, I will worry a bit that people are being overlooked. So watch over one another. You see a need, meet it. You see someone that needs pray, pray, you know, prayer, pray with them. I think you do a good job of that anyway. Just carry on 
and we'll see you in three weeks. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this time in your word. I thank you for this church. It is a delight to serve them and to love them very dearly. And I pray, Lord, that they are encouraged as I am through your word, through this amazing study of John, even over the last few weeks looking at this uh, amazing, incredible miracle and the reminder that, Lord, you, you are orchestrating these events. It is so easy to sort of take matters into our own hands, to plot our own, own course, to make our own way. It is a vain thing to do that. Instead, we're just told to trust in you, to lean not on our own understanding. Would you help us to do that, God? I know it's easier to just uh, rely on our, our own understanding, but we want to trust in you. I pray for your church. I pray for your people while we're away. Would you just guide them and protect them and care for them? I thank you for Shelby and, and Rachel. I thank you for our trustees and those who are here to also help in that uh, matter to, to oversee and to uh, care for the church. I pray that everyone's needs will be met, but ultimately that they would just walk with you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time in your word. We pray all things for the glory of Christ. Amen.